electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Yes, it does. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Ahead today, the great dispersion continues into the third trading session of the year. High P.E. stocks suffering, low P.E. stocks outperforming, value over growth, materials over tech. Should you chase these moves or fade them? We will discuss. And the last remaining BlackBerry phone stopped working yesterday, but the company moved on long ago. It's now focused on software for cybersecurity and for EVs. We'll talk to the CEO about the company's next chapters. And the afternoon action, we've got the story in the trades on Intel, AT&T, and Beyond Meat. But first, way over there to Dom Chu with the market numbers. I can see you way over there. I can see Jim Cramer way over there. I can see Scott Wapner waving to me way over there. But yes, we are all socially distant in this new wave of Omicron here at CNBC Global Headquarters. And with the markets overall, we are seeing a little bit more of a mixed action here. So you had the march towards record highs taking a bit of a pause, but the Nasdaq still underperforming, as you can see here. Down about 1.5% for the composite, 15,401 the last trade there, 47.76. That's about 16 handles lower, one-third of a percent declines for the S&P 500. Meanwhile, the Dow continues the outperformance it's had, up about 95 points right now, 36,892, up one quarter of 1%. If you take a look at the picture overall, look at interest rates. A big driver of some of the recent action, especially in financials, the 10-year Treasury note yield currently ticking just a hair higher, 1.68%. The reason why it's important, as you can see on the right-hand side of the screen, this is the upper end of a trading range that we've seen over the course of the last three to four months. About 169, 170 has been the high end of that range. So as you are starting to see some of that interest rate move top out, maybe at these levels, we are keeping a close eye on the financials, especially because of Fed minutes coming out. And speaking of those financials, check out what's happening overall with some of the big bank names out there. They've had a big run as of late, but still a bit of a pause for J.P. Morgan today. Flat on the session. Bank of America just about flat as well. Citigroup has been an underperformer over the last few months here, up about one quarter of one percent. But it's the regional banks like M&T Bank and Comerica, especially that have seen some real outperformance in recent weeks. So watch those regional banks. I will send things, Kelly, back over to you way over there. All right, Don, thank you very much. So if you're pondering, like many, how much longer this rotation into value and out of growth can last, my next guest says high-quality stocks are still trading at the largest discount to low-quality ones in more than a decade. Joining me now is Mike Liss, Senior Portfolio Manager at American Century Investments. Mike, is this still true after the last three days? Yes, Kelly, I think it really is still true. Look, if you look at the context of the current environment, where you've had tech stocks outperform tremendously and the valuations become very elevated. It's been aided by very loose monetary policy, which has really allowed a lot of speculation. And and now you have rates starting to move back up, which means that those tech earnings should start to be discounted at higher levels and those stocks should then start to underperform. In the meantime, you've had areas like healthcare and consumer staples really be ignored over the last couple of years. All, all the while, they've grown their earnings and their valuations have improved more and more. 
So they're looking like much more attractive areas to us. So healthcare and consumer staples, which are not necessarily the names that are screening strong right now. The first couple of days of the year, it's been all about financials and energy. Today, the materials are the leading sector. Why do healthcare and consumer staples look interesting to you? Is this kind of a defensive position uh, against market underperformance? Or do you think they could turn in double digit strong performance this year? It's not, Kelly, it's not really that it's, it's defensive. It's that there's a lot of high quality companies in those sectors. And those sec- those two sectors have really lagged. Look, we're seeing our spots in energy and banks as well. They're looking on a relative basis more attractive as well. But healthcare and consumer staples specifically, they look good because there's some really good high quality companies there that have lagged. Let's give some examples. You like Zimmer Biomet, you like Heartland Express, although is that, is that the, yeah, the trucking company. You also yes. like General Motors. So you do have some names in the traditional industrial space. What, along with Zimmer, would be names that you like in healthcare and consumer staples? So Zimmer, certainly one we like. The pharma se- sector has really underperformed. So companies like Merck and Bristol-Myers, for example. But Zimmer, they make artificial hips and knees. And there's steady demand, stable demand for their products been out of favor for what we believe are transitory reasons. And that's mostly related to COVID-19. Elective procedures have been under pressure at hospitals. We think that as the current wave of COVID-19 starts to ebb, we think that procedures will pick back up again. And here's a company that has high returns on capital, I think can move up even more because it had some elevated spending, especially on a recent product cycle. That product cycle is going to start to pay up for them and they're going to start to grab a little bit of share back so you have a company with a strong balance sheet and a modest valuation we think it's a good risk reward here a final question on general motors we are speaking with mary barra next hour and the stock is up 60 percent over the past year what upside do you see so we're not going to give a specific price target but we do see quite a bit of upside here And, and the company's done a really good job of moving out of unprofitable geographies and vehicle segments into higher margin areas like SUVs and and pickup trucks. And the company is really using that strong free cash flow from that legacy internal combustion engine business to fund their transition to electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles. And look, we really think they're leaders in autonomous vehicles with their majority owned cruise business. Yeah. So they're making a good transition. We like that plan, strong balance sheet, and still a very cheap stock. So we think it's a good risk reward here. All right. So there you go, everybody. If you're looking for some new names to look at for 2022, Mike Liss, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Kelly. Great to be here. With American Century Investments. Let's get to Capitol Hill now, where lawmakers are discussing yet another round of COVID relief for some businesses. Elon Moy is here with all the latest. Elon? Well, Kelly, I can confirm reporting from The Washington Post that there are some early discussions between Republicans and Democrats about ways to provide more aid for businesses that have been hit by Omicron. Now, according to a source, Democratic Senator Ben Cardin, the chairman of the Small Business Committee, and Republican Roger Wicker, the ranking member of the Commerce Committee, have been in talks about a package based on their bill to provide another $50 billion for restaurants. Now, the Post reported that the total price tag for additional relief could be about $68 billion 
billion. Meanwhile, there's been an ongoing push in the House from about 60 lawmakers from both sides of the aisle to help not just restaurants, but also gyms and hotels as well. Minnesota Democratic Representative Dean Phillips is spearheading that effort. And in a letter to leadership, he wrote, Tens of thousands of small businesses across the country are faced with the possibility of layoffs, reduced service or hours, or outright closure, barring additional federal relief. But already, key Republicans are throwing cold water on this idea. GOP Senator John Barrasso sent us this statement, we need to fully open our economy instead of passing the buck and calling for more taxpayer bailouts. Now, some lawmakers had originally hoped they could attach this aid to the bigger social spending package, Kelly, but now that's going nowhere, so they're looking for other ways to keep this alive. Back over to you. Which is interesting because, number one, I don't know if restaurants ever got the direct aid they've been pushing for. Number two, this is more a you know casualty of the Build Back Better plan dying than it is the spread of Omicron. And number three, ha- is any other industry currently being targeted for relief at this point? These are the only ones we've heard of so far, Kelly. The idea around this package, if it were to come to fruition, would that it'd have to be pretty narrow in order to get both Democrats and Republicans on board. You heard the argument there from a member of GOP leadership saying, you know, this could contribute to increased inflation. So I think the desire would be to keep it pretty targeted and not include some of the other measures like the child tax credit or stimulus checks that have been the hallmark of the previous COVID relief packages. Have rest- Restaurants or gyms received direct relief up until this point of the pandemic? The best that I understand, Kelly, is that some of them have, but not all of them either qualify. Some of the money dried up very quickly, especially for the restaurants, I believe, and for some of the live entertainment venues. Um, So the funding maybe didn't quite trickle down to all the folks who needed it. And so there's been this effort to re-up some of those programs. And certainly some of the funding uh, could be unused COVID relief money that was dedicated to other sectors that they might be able to repurpose. Some of it might be new funding altogether. Interesting. All right. And just as Kate Rogers was reporting about some of the problems with that aid for live events as well. Elon, thanks very much. Uh, Keep us posted. Elon Moy watching the state of play on Capitol Hill today. Coming up from smartphones to smart cars, BlackBerry is bidding an official farewell to its classic phone and setting its sights on EVs and cyber. BlackBerry CEO John Chen joins us live right after this. Plus, bullish on Pfizer but bearish on Moderna. One analyst declaring Pfizer the clear winner in the COVID race, upgrading the stock to a buy and seeing it rally more than 25% from here. He joins us to explain why Moderna isn't as well positioned. Salesforce and Microsoft, those are the biggest laggards in the Dow right now as tech continues to trade heavy. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome back to The Exchange. One day after ending full service to its iconic phone, BlackBerry making a number of splashy announcements at CES completely unrelated to phones. The company pushing big into cybersecurity and electric vehicles, unveiling a slew of new technologies like digital fingerprinting for cars. I'm pleased to be joined now by BlackBerry's executive chairman and CEO, John Chen. John, it's great to have you here again. Thank you for having me. Tell me about the digital fingerprinting. Oh, well, it's actually part of the whole um, in-vehicle data platform. Um, we, want to, we want to turn the car into a wallet or the extension of your wallet. Uh, we also want to make sure that you know, all the intelligence data are being accumulated, shared with a smart city environment, um, pushing everything from the edge computing to, to the cloud computing and so forth. So it's, it's, a, it's a really small one of the piece of a very big picture. What do you think investors are missing about this picture? With the shares under 10 bucks, and their, I think their meme high about a year ago was around 25. Well, I mean, obviously, um, we, in running our company, we obviously feel that we are undervalued. There's a lot of potential in our stock. Um, and we need to show some of the revenue growth. Uh, but what we're positioning ourselves, uh, especially with the cybersecurity, uh, as well as with the auto industry, um, with embedded software, with intelligent software, um, I, I think we're in the right place and the right market and, and hoping that this is a long-term rewarding stock to shareholders. Do you think there would be a benefit from splitting out the cybersecurity business with the car business? Well, it, it, it may be an early conversation. Um, this is a little bit too early for it. Um, I think it's, I split the two organizations to, to generate a couple of things, focus, transparency, in the executions and the results. So as soon as both of them were able to demonstrate that growth, that consistent growth and the market share winning and, 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 and the execution, um, I think it's too early to tell. However, there's one other aspect to it. Um, it may be that the market demanded for it to more come together, especially when it comes to smart city, especially, you know, how a car and the cybersecurity protection of their car is all part and parcel of the same 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 architecture, so mm -hmm. to speak. So it's, you'll, you'll, we'll see. We'll see how how the world evolves. If the world goes your way this year, should we expect a lot of announcements from big automakers about partnering or using BlackBerry technology? They already do. They already do. I have 45 OEM as our customers, and OEM meaning people like GM and Ford and so forth, uh, around the world. Um, we have 24 of the 25 uh, electric vehicle platform uh, out there that is using our software already today. Uh, and we have over 195 million cars as of June of last year uh, using our software running around the, you know, on the roads around the world today. So we are already quite big in the footprint. And you do have a new investor base who's excited about the potential here. Let's talk about some of the old uh, BlackBerry users. Have you gotten any feedback over the past 24 hours since you pulled the plug? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, well, first of all, Pull the plug, it sounds so final. Um, <laughs> 26, <laughs> we, we made a decision on 2016 to pivot away from the hardware, um, but, but, but preserve the software technology and the security. So, so we, we feel like we have, you know, five years, it was a very long time uh, for, our, for our loyal customers to be able to, to move to a different platform, a hardware platform. Um, and many of them still uses our software platform in managing the devices and managing the applications. Uh, but but one thing, I normally don't do social media networking or, or writing, 
Uh, but last night I have to make, post a tweet and because there's so many well wishes and great memories uh, people send me. I mean, <laughs> literally, I, I, I can't keep up with it. Um, and and I felt quite moved um, and, and, and you know, very appreciative of that. So I sent out a little tweet last night. <laughs> Um, and I haven't really seen the results because I know once I engage in it, I won't ever stop. <laughs> well, if you're uh, if the Twitter army that is now part of your retail base realizes that they'll be they'll be lighting up your Twitter feed for sure. How many phones do you think were affected yesterday? How many were still active? Um, a little over 300,000. Wow. Do you have any regrets about the move, especially after seeing those tributes pour in? Well, it's always regretful. I mean, it's it's it. Uh, um, you know, every one of us uses it. Everyone has loved it. You know, we have great memory, great pride. Um, so, but you never, you know, but but we are on to bigger and better things. Um, we, you know, we think protecting all the endpoints in the world, not only the phones, uh, collecting, you know, analytics for all the phones in the world or and all the devices and IoT devices, including cars, are a much bigger market. And, and it, will be, it will be better for the company on the long term. Well, very well said. Uh, still a tough day for those 300,000 users. <laughs> John, I, know. I know. John, thanks very much for your time today. Thank you. Kevin. John Chen is the executive chairman and CEO of BlackBerry. Coming up, this energy stock is up 34% in just the past month. Can its run continue? We'll talk to the CEO about what he sees in store for 2022. Plus, mortgage rates just hit a nine-month high and loan demand keeps dropping. What that pretends for the housing market ahead. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. Let's get a quick check on markets. The Dow is positive by 65 points. Again, we're continuing the trend of the last three days. S&P negative by 17. Tech weighing on that. Real estate down today as well. NASDAQ down 216 for another day of big declines. And to illustrate this, we're also seeing all-time highs today for the S&P dividend ETF, the S&P value ETF, and the Russell 1000 value ETF. So SDY, IVE, IWD, all your emblematic tickers of the day gains to half of 1%. On the flip side, Salesforce and Adobe are lower after UBS downgraded them to neutral, warning business software spending was pulled forward in the pandemic. Both stocks saw modest gains last year of about 14%, already their worst year since 2016. The stocks are down 5% for Adobe today and 6.5% for Salesforce, the worst in the Dow right now. For more on this call, you can head over to cnbc.com pro. And Estee Lauder coming off its best quarter since 2019, but getting a downgrade to hold at Bank of America today, citing valuation concerns. It's down 3.5%. Jim Cramer writing in his news letter. He agrees with the call, but would look to get back in below 340. We're still up at 358. For more of his insights, scan the QR code on the screen or go to cnbc.com slash investing club. Now to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC news update. Rahel. Hi, Kelly. And here's what's happening at this hour. The Senate holding a hearing on the January 6th riot on Capitol Hill just before the one year mark of the attack. Capitol Police Chief Tom Manger described how he's improved his police force and how they'll respond to any future incidents. He also said Capitol Police staffing is still down by almost 450 officers. And on the news tonight, lessons learned and changes made since an angry crowd stormed Congress. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. 
The White House supply chain czar says that the holiday shipping season was a success despite significant challenges. However, officials are closely watching the impact of rising Omicron cases. The administration is seeking to prioritize the transportation of medical supply equipment. And the governor of Louisiana has given a posthumous pardon to Homer Plessy. Plessy's arrest for refusing to leave an all-white railroad car in 1892 led to the Supreme Court ruling that cemented separate but equal into law for decades to come. Governor John Bell Edwards held the ceremony near the spot where Plessy was arrested. You're now up to date. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, thank you. Still ahead, Intel goes from chaos to coherent. AT&T wants investors to buy into its vision. And Beyond Meat is putting some muscle into fake chicken. Your afternoon action is next. Welcome back. It's time for a read on the afternoon action. We've got the story in the trades on some big movers and shakers in the market right now. And we'll begin with Intel jumping today on an upgrade to outperform at Northland Capital. The shares are up still almost 3%. The firm saying Intel has gone from chaos to a coherent strategy after floundering amid the competitive chip market the last few years. They're noting it's a bargain compared to other high multiple names, not to mention its attractive 2.7% dividend yield. And the shares only gained 3% last year. Here with more of the story is John Ford. And Danielle Shea is here with our trades today. She's vice president of options at Simpler Trading. Welcome to you both. John, we have at least one believer. (laughs) <laughs> oh, well, I guess we'll hear about, oh, you mean the, the person who wrote this note? I mean, kind of, yeah. kind of. But what, what fascinates me about this note is it's, a, it's to outperform, but he doesn't even really fully believe that Pat Gelsinger, Intel CEO, can pull off the strategy. And as the viewers know, two months ago, I went out to California, sat down with Pat for uh, half an hour or longer, really drilling down on the strategy. In this note, he's saying, I don't really think Foundry is going to work. I think Intel's pretty far behind, you know, product-wise, AMD. Pat Gelsinger telling a different story about how quickly he thinks Intel's going to be able to close the performance gap. It's got products out this year at CES that he would argue are on par with AMD. We'll see how the benchmarks uh, around power and power consumption uh, play out. And also, they've got graphics chips that they're launching, brand new business, plus the foundry stuff that this analyst is skeptical of, Gelsinger tells me, is is happening on schedule. So um, it's going to be really interesting uh, in that it's like betting against Frodo, right, in (laughs) Fellowship of the Ring. At some point, maybe we get to, you know, Two Towers, Return of the King, and and you got to shift the odds, even though, you know, Soren, it it makes sense to bet on Soren. Well, that's exactly, Danielle, what I was going to ask. As the stock has done so poorly, is it starting to get interesting to you? You know, I think it's a little bit interesting here. I mean, I think outperform is a little bit of a stretch, but looking at the charts, we are starting to see some upwards price action. They have beat earnings the last eight quarters in a row, and they do historically trade higher in that time frame pre-earnings. However, I would argue a lot of that move has already been had. They historically trade higher by about 10% in a 21 bar time frame pre-earnings. We've already seen that move and we're trading directly into resistance. So I can't say I'd love to buy Intel here. However, if Intel could break up above the 56 price point, hold up above there, and we could potentially see some follow through up into about, you know, 60, 65, I think there's a trade there, but I don't think it's the best semiconductor stock on the planet right now. John, is there anything else the CEO might have up his sleeve or are all the cards out on the table now? 
he laid pretty much everything out, which is unusual. Uh, oftentimes, they kind of hold something back. He laid out the entire it, implausible, some would argue, turnaround strategy and exactly how he plans to do it. Now it's a matter of the benchmarks. Can they actually execute? This is reminiscent of five, five and a half years ago when investors were betting against Qualcomm because Apple was dropping them. Hmm. Regulators around the world said their business model was broken. Qualcomm managed to pull that one out, and it went from, you know, around 50 up to what? It's at 180 now. We'll, we'll see if Intel can pull off a similar trick. Very well said. And as we, so before we leave the topic, Danielle, the rest of the chip space, how do you feel about it right now? SMH yesterday was still up around 314. You know, I love the chip space. Chip space is always going to be one of my favorite areas to trade, especially because of the outperformance. I typically stick with AMD and NVIDIA. Now, that being said, because they did have such a strong year last year, I highly doubt they're going to match the performance that we saw. But I still think that continuing to average in to both stocks, especially on pullbacks like we're seeing right now, I really like to buy at key areas on the daily chart. If we can get down to the 50 simple or the 200 simple on the daily charts in those names, those are typically places where I'm always adding in. All right, and I'm watching the ETF, which is down around 310, about a 1% dip today. Those stocks also in the red. We'll move along, John. Thank you very much, John, for today. And we'll talk some AT&T, which is also on the rise after saying it added 1.3 million phone subscribers in the fourth quarter. That was nearly 400,000 more than expected. Shares did drop 14% last year amid what the Wall Street Journal calls a gut remodel to its strategy. It's spinning off its TV and media business into that joint venture with Discovery in order to focus on its core wireless and broadband segments. Julia Borson here with the story. And Julia, I thought on the broadband side it was maybe less good news. Yeah, the, the broadband numbers were both slightly lower than expected, and also the fourth quarter was slightly lower than the third quarter. But I think that the reason the stock is up today, and you now see it up 4%, Kelly, really comes down to the growth of those wireless numbers. Not only were they more than 300,000 better than expected for those wireless additions, but also if you look at the full year, this was the best year for AT&T in terms of those postpaid additions in about a decade. So we're talking about a meaningful year if you look at all of 2021. And also, I would just point out, Kelly, that the company reported better than expected growth of its HBO subscriber numbers than anticipated above the range that they had given analysts. And that's key because even though they're going to be completing the spinoff of Warner Media, AT&T is still going to be owning 71% of that company. So there is exposure there. And the better HBO and HBO Max do, the, the better that is for that parent company of AT&T. How much of a headwind, Julia, is this 5G delay? Two weeks now, as we understand, but it sounds like a lot of the disagreements here haven't been resolved. Well, uh, Kelly, I, I don't have a, a crystal ball to tell you what's going to happen in two weeks, but I do believe they are planning to roll this out in two weeks. And AT&T and Verizon together, they control over 50 percent uh, of the mobile phone subscribers in the U.S. So this is a really big deal for them to get 5G out there. And they do seem to be on track to have it all happen in two weeks. So it has been a headache. They've been working on 5G for a long time now, but it seems to be moving forward. Danielle, what would you do with the stock? You know, I just, I don't like the stock here for a buy. I just think that there's way too much overhead resistance. If you look at the charts, I mean, they've, they've really been in a downtrend for the past several years, despite what they've been doing with the business. And you have to have quite a bit of investors in there that want to get out of this stock on any kind of rally, especially because they've cut the dividend. So 
For me, when I look at this stock, I see all the overhead resistance around the $30 price point. While I do believe that it could rally another few dollars into that area, I would sell it at that level because I just think at this point, the stock is dead money. What about Verizon and what about T-Mobile? Um, I do like the relative strength with Verizon and T-Mobile, but honestly, when you're looking at the communication stock, I would much prefer to stick with something like Facebook or Netflix. I just think that with social media, with the creator economy, yes, of course, you know, we do have 5G coming out, but I would prefer to either stick with T-Mobile, Verizon, Facebook, or Netflix anything in the social media space rather than something like AT&T. I just think that over the course of the past several years, it just has not made any progress and it just doesn't really make sense to have dead money in that stock. Some tough talk from Shay. She's going to maybe light a fire under them. Uh, Julia, we appreciate it. We'll leave it there. Julia Borson covering AT&T for us. And finally today, take a look at Beyond Meat getting a nice boost. Uh, Actually, it's down 1% now. Uh, KFC is getting a nice boost. All right, Yum is up a quarter percent now. Anyway, uh, KFC is rolling out Beyond's meatless fried chicken in restaurants next week. This is after years of successful tests between the two brands. Beyond share spiked in early trading before falling back, as you can see now. And it's coming off a year where it dropped about 50%. Kate Rogers has all the details. It sounds like we can get this fried chicken on Monday, Kate. Yeah, so this will be next week, Kelly, on Monday in about 4,000 KFC locations across the United States. As you mentioned, the two have worked together for a few years with several successful partnerships. One sold out in about five hours in an Atlanta store a few years back. So they are familiar with one another as brand partners. Uh, This is a KFC-specific recipe, and I talked to the executives of both Beyond Meat and the KFC U.S. president yesterday, and they said that they're confident about a few things. Supply, number one. Number two, the texture of this actual Beyond Meat plant based Kentucky Fried Chicken. They say it has more of like a muscle uh, type of an experience when you bite into it instead of a chicken nugget. So they were able to mimic that and really get the texture right. And finally, they said this is a great time to do this because it's January and people are making all types of new commitments to perhaps cut back on meat consumption, switch over to plant-based, become more flexitarian. So all of those things on the horizon, this could be a really big year for Beyond Meat. It's got this partnership with Yum to do uh, meat alternatives for KFC, Taco Bell, and Pizza Hut. It's got the test with McDonald's and an upcoming uh, partnership with Pepsi this year. So a lot to prove and and a lot on the line. All right, Danielle, I'm almost afraid to ask, what would you do with Beyond Meat? (laughs) So looking at Beyond Meat, Beyond Meat's been in a downtrend for quite a while, right? And I mean, I think that the partnership with KFC is a great, (laughs) it's great for Beyond Meat, but I just can't get my head wrapped around the fact that people who are going to KFC want to actually have a meat alternative. So Mm -hmm. to me, it seems to me that (laughs) this isn't going to have a huge impact on Beyond Meat stock. When you're looking at Beyond Meat, because of the downtrend that it's in, I think that we could reasonably see an oversold bounce. I think it would make sense for it to trade higher into, you know, $75, $80. For me, the primary thing that I do with this stock is I look for any kind of catalyst for a potential short squeeze. Because there's so much high short interest in this stock, right around 37%, Uh, For me, I just keep it on my radar, and if there is a positive news event and it does gap up, it can make for a really good momentum trade. But as you can see today, we're not seeing that kind of price action with the news. So for that reason, 
I just have to leave it alone. It's trading down near 60. And Danielle, on that note, I actually want to ask you, we're about 20 minutes away from the Fed minutes. And in some ways, Beyond Meat and other stocks like that have had a hard year and people are wondering, you know, what happens next? Do high interest rates make it even worse? Or are we starting to, you know, find names in the wreckage, so to speak? Do you want to just offer kind of a macro comment on the first couple trading days of the year here where we're seeing an even bigger divergence? Yes, I mean, I think we're seeing a huge divergence right now because I think that investors are concerned with what is going to happen with the Fed. I mean, right now, we don't know what the market reaction is going to be. I think in some respects, it has been priced in. We are expecting rising interest rates. And yesterday, especially, we saw the 10-year rising substantially and tech stocks getting hit. So I do think that there's going to be more volatility with the Fed. I do think that the market is going to react in probably a negative way initially. But what I also think is going to happen is that we have an earnings season coming up here very soon. And what I'm looking forward to is I want to see stocks like Microsoft, Apple, Google, Facebook, Netflix come out and say, hey, guess what? We're doing great. We're growing. And I think that that should put a little bit of a damper on the inflationary fears and the Fed fears in the market right now. All right. There's the playbook. Danielle, thank you so much for your time today, Danielle Shea. Kate Rogers reporting on Beyond as always, Kate, a big thank you. Up next, 25%. That's how much shares of Liberty Oilfield Services have climbed in just the first three trading days of this year. We're going to dig into these outsized moves and look at how much gas is left in the tank with the CEO right after this. Welcome back to the exchange. Oil rallying to start the year, adding to 2021's monster gains. Crude is up more than 18% in the past month alone, and we're closing back in around the $80 a barrel mark, about a buck and a half shy of that level. It's boosting energy companies like Liberty Oil Field Services, which is up 30% in a month. It's jumped in just the past three days. Chris Wright is the CEO of Liberty Oil Field Services, and he joins me fresh off his virtual session at the Goldman Energy Conference. What is that behind you, Chris? Welcome. Yeah, they, they made the conference virtual, so I'm up in Montana at a ski house. So a little wow. different setting than I'm usually. Yeah, it's very nice. So w- what do you tell attendees? You know, I, I think the stock story is kind of speaking for itself right now. I mean, the, the sector obviously was hit hard by COVID, and then the returns for our customers responded quickly. Oil and gas prices came up, but the returns and profitability in the service sector, it's only more recently risen. So I think it's exciting times now. We're starting to get pricing, and I think we'll see a pretty good year ahead for the oil field service sector, and likely several good years ahead. What's the sweet spot for you for the price of crude oil? You know, probably around where it is now. You know, right now you've got very strong drilling economics for all of our customers, but it's not a meaningful economic headwind for the for the for the population of the world, and certainly in the United States. So the reason I ask is because I've seen comments from Diamondback and others. They're concerned that if energy spiked to 90, definitely over $100 a barrel, you start to get demand destruction. You start to invite a political response. Do you think we can rule out a spike like that now or could it still happen? Oh, it could certainly still happen. I certainly agree with Travis's comments from from Diamondback that too high oil prices, they aren't good for anyone. And most importantly, they aren't good for the citizens of the world. We're seeing in Europe right now with 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 misinvestment in energy and a poor evolution of their energy system. Natural gas prices in Europe on an oil equivalent basis are over two hundred dollars. This is disastrous. Factories are being shut in. People can't afford to heat their homes. 
No one wants that. No one wants that. Yeah, no, we've we've certainly gotten more use, unfortunately, to power interruptions and sort of the need for reliable energy. But obviously, people still want renewables. It's ever more important. What's the ESG trend having on your company in terms of an impact either on the stock price or in the choices you're making about where to invest? You know, certainly with our customers, the oil and gas producers, a huge interest of theirs is to lower their emissions. Liberty's been a leader in that from the start. Very early on, we were building dual fuel fleets that could burn diesel or natural gas. Now we have better technologies of dual fuel fleets. We have an electric frack fleet we're rolling out this year. That's not only electric, but has the perfect way to take natural gas to make electricity at the highest possible thermal efficiency. So very low emissions. And I would say the industry-wide interest in that is tremendous. Your shares are trading around the $12 mark right now, about midway between the 52-week range. Uh, latest data, six analysts have a buy, 11 have a hold. What would you tell those who are still on the sidelines about what you think the stock could do and where it should be valued? Uh, I don't, I, I'm not going to comment on the stock price, but I will say our business is, is rapidly improving right now. We should have a good year this year and probably some tremendous years coming up. And mainly because of our technical advantages versus our competitors, our partnerships with our customers, and sort of a global misunderstanding that somehow oil and gas are going away and they're only going to be around for five or 10 or 20 years. That's just simply not true. And so I think we're seeing a world with underinvestment in oil and gas. Again, we're seeing that in Europe right now. But in the next few years, we're going to see an increased appreciation and an increased need for investment in growing oil and gas production. We still got a third of humanity cooking their daily meals, burning wood, dung or agricultural waste. They need oil and gas to live better, cleaner, longer, healthier lives. All right. We'll leave it there. Chris, thanks for your time today. Thanks, Kelly. Happy New Year. Chris Wright is the CEO of Liberty Oil Field Services. And what a run that stock has had. The Biden administration increasing its order of Pfizer's COVID therapeutic, but it's not the only reason to be bullish on Pfizer this year, according to one analyst. We'll dig into that next. And remember, you can catch this show anytime, anywhere by listening to and following the Exchange podcast. While you're there, you can check out my new Conversations with Kelly. Want to hear from a famous NFT artist, a utility CEO on how to lower energy bills? We've got you covered. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for CNBC The Exchange. Welcome back, up 63%. That's the spike we've seen in the seven-day daily average of COVID hospitalizations over the past week, according to the CDC. Meg Terrell is here with the latest on COVID, on the Omicron variant, and the guidance on what to do about everything. Meg? Hey, Kelly, while these numbers are rising incredibly quickly, case numbers now averaging more than 500,000 per day on the seven-day average. And as you said, hospitalizations are now showing that upward spike as well, growing pretty quickly and approaching that 100,000 uh, people currently in the hospital with COVID. Although anecdotally, we are hearing generally the cases in the hospital are less severe. Um, deaths have not increased. We're seeing around 1,300 per day. And there's a hope, of course, that will remain the same. Um, Dr. Anthony Fauci addressed this question today in the White House COVID briefing and in particular spoke about what we've been seeing in children. Here's what he had to say. In general, Omicron appears to be a less severe disease across the board, but the sheer volume of infections because of its profound transmissibility mean that many more children 
will get infected and as many more children will get infected, a certain proportion of them, usually children that have underlying comorbidities, are going to wind up in the hospital. That is just an inevitability. And that is something we have been seeing. Dr. Fauci emphasizing vaccines are available for kids down to age five. And of course, the CDC right now is meeting with its advisory committee to discuss boosters for the Pfizer vaccine for kids ages 12 to 15. Uh, one concern there has been the issue of myocarditis, that very rare heart risk sometimes seen after the second dose of an mRNA vaccine. A presentation from Israel just now saying they've seen really reassuring data on that with boosters. After the third dose, it appears to be a very rare side effect, Kelly. So we'll keep you posted on what happens with this meeting. Back over Absolutely. To you. Meg, thank you very much. Our Meg Terrell. Now, the Biden administration is doubling its order of Pfizer's COVID drug, although it won't be available in bulk till June. Bank of America upgrading Pfizer shares to buy, hiking the price target to 70 today. And it's not just COVID-related ther uh, therapies that they're bullish on. Joining me now with his 2022 pharma outlook, Jeff Meacham is senior analyst at Bank of America. Jeff, welcome. Thank you, Kelly, for having me. Happy New Year. And to you, and, and what do you see as the big catalyst to come for Pfizer when it feels like so much should be in their recent past already? Right. It's a good question. You know, I would say Paxlovid, the oral COVID pill, is probably going to have, you know, I think a pretty robust launch, provided that they can scale up. But there's just a lot of other things going on in Pfizer's pipeline. I'd also say that, you know, there we, we evaluated their cash flow and they can generate more than $100 billion in cash. In the next four years. So M&A could be a big part of the story this year and, and next. And could you describe a little bit what we should maybe anticipate on that front? You know, what they have said is they want to go after companies in similar therapeutic areas. So probably not going to buy technologies or things like that. So I would say larger scale deals that, you know, not not mega pharma deals, but let's call it mid-sized biotechs. But that could really solve the LOE problem that they have, you know, starting in 2025, 2026. Sorry, what's LOE? Uh, patent expirations. Got it. Understood. Let's talk about why you think they're so much better positioned than Moderna. Moderna is one of the few companies you do have it as an underperform. Why? You know, I think the, the basis for that is we're not negative on Moderna from a technology perspective. We think that they've invested, you know, properly in the business. It's just the assumptions that one needs. Uh, for boosters to get to consensus forecasts. You know, we're talking, you know, five, eight, 10 billion uh, in 2023 and beyond. Uh, I just think that is less likely. I mean, most, most folks, you know, wouldn't want to get boosted in quarantine and, and continue this cycle for the foreseeable future. At least you could say, well, Pfizer has a pill, which I think practically and convenience wise, I think will definitely be more, uh, more exciting to folks uh, in, in a COVID world versus this perpetual cycle of, uh, of boosters. What would change your mind about Moderna? You know, uh, a lot of investors believe that you know, the flu and CMV and other programs that they have on the pipeline, you know, are going to be super fast and developed equally as fast as, uh, as spike backs or COVID therapy. Uh, and it's, the problem is that it's a normal drug development cycle. It's going to take a few more years. Uh, but if they can show dramatic benefits and some non-COVID pipeline, you know, uh, assets, uh, and get them on the market or get at least to a de-risking point faster. Then I think that would be that would make us a little bit more positive. All right, your 135 price target still well below 220 where the shares are now. Let me switch back to Pfizer for just a moment. There, your price target is 70. Don't the antivirals sort of eat away at their uh, vaccine market share? And how much does COVID 
if you could even break it down this way, factor into your price target? Yeah, COVID's a big part of the cash flow in the next four years or so. It's, it's more than half that we assume. Uh, but I would say, you know, in general, though, we, we don't even for Pfizer have, you know, boosters having long lasting P&L impact. Really, it's the it's the oral that could. I just think, you know, let's say in three to five years, uh, it's probably best to stockpile the oral in the case of having outbreaks in certain you know neighborhoods or cities or even countries versus trying to revaccinate and reboost, you know, to do that cycle every single year. So to us, the oral you know, has a lot more durability, whereas we're less optimistic that the vaccine boosters are going to be durable. Well, let me just emphasize that there's a lot of people who think the, all of these boosters are just about, you know, pharmaceutical companies wanting profits. And you actually think that their antiviral pill treatment is going to be more lucrative than their boosters? I think so. From a Definitely from an operational perspective, the margins on the oral are much, much higher than the booster, just given their shared economics with partner BioNTech. Um, but, you know, really from a um, from a stockpiling perspective, um, it to me makes more sense to, you know, to for the for the oral because it reduces the risk of hospitalization, severe infections. And those are things that can really tax healthcare systems. So having that around, I think, is, is a little bit more rapid to respond to, uh, to an outbreak should a new strain emerge. Fascinating. Jeff, thanks for all your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Jeff Meacham with Bank of America. Still ahead, rates are up, applications are down, and a housing health check is due. We'll have it next for you here on The Exchange. Mortgage rates have jumped to a nine-month high. Diana Olick is here with the impact. Diana? Well, Kelly, the surge this week continues after a slow rate rise over the last two weeks. Yesterday, the average rate on the 30-year fixed hit 3.35 percent, that according to Mortgage News Daily. And that's the highest level since the start of last April. Rates are now 58 basis points higher than they were a year ago. And higher rates are causing mortgage demand, both refinances and purchase loans, to pull back. Mortgage applications fell over the past two weeks, with refis down 40 percent from a year ago. But what's most interesting in the rate watch is the home builder stock. Take a look at what happened just two days ago when bond yields and interest rates popped higher. The home building ETF dropped even as the broader market rallied. It recovered slightly yesterday, but affordability is a growing concern with rising rates. Analyst Buck Horn at Raymond James told me yesterday sharp swings in rates like we saw Monday probably amplified those fears. But so far, buyers seem to be shrugging rates off and focusing on all the other really positive data housing points. Kelly, we are watching it closely. Diana, thank you are Diana Olick. And that does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.